once we grasp how to create flywheel momentum in our particular circumstance and apply that understanding with creativity and discipline, we get the power of strategic compounding. Welcome to CEO Brain Food. Every episode, entrepreneur, CEO, founder, and host Michael Langhout will bring you key insights, fresh perspectives, and proven tools you can apply to your business. Thought leaders and CEOs will be interviewed as we explore winning strategies for scaling a company, generating profits, and building lasting enterprise value. Here's Michael. Welcome to CEO Brain Food and I wanted to say thank you, Harry Durand, our producer. Uh, as always, you're with us today. Most welcome, Michael. Happy to join you again for an exciting topic, the idea of uh, getting the motors in your business running. Yes, get your motors running. I think there's a, uh, a 70s uh, song by that title, or at least uh, some <laughs> of the words. We'll see if we can get the rights to it, and we'll play it on this episode. <laughs> I, should, I should call uh, the boys over at Doobie Brothers and see if they would let us do that. I don't know. We'll see. Get your motors running. Head on down the highway. Business acceleration by design. Yeah, so so the big question is how do we increase the rate of business acceleration? Is it random? Does it just happen randomly? Do we just grow because we've got great products and services and we got a ton of people wanting to buy them? Or better yet, does it happen because we've designed it in a way that makes it attractive to our customers? and makes it easy for them and that they would have an outstanding customer experiences. As we know, the processes in a business are dynamic. They're really not static. So as I say, I've said it many times, they're either getting better or they're getting worse. And the key is to identify and understand those processes that will be very foundational for you as you build your business and begin to accelerate. Growing a business and accelerating up through the growth curves of a business to the various plateaus, and by that I can just think in terms of startups that are trying to hit their first milestone of, say, a million dollars to the next level of growth, maybe a plateau of five million and maybe another one up to 15 million and yet another one to 25 million and, and maybe beyond that to 50 or even higher to 100 or two or 500 500 million, each one of those plateaus is preceded by something we call a valley of death. And we have to be careful about keeping ourselves very, very focused on the direction, on the critical direction, the mission, the vision, if you will, of the company. The North Star, as we talk about, which is our big, hairy, audacious goal, as Jim Collins talks about. I like to quote Jim quite a bit professor out of the University of Colorado up in Boulder, prolific author, speaker, generally brilliant uh, businessman, business thinker today. But the growth process could be simplified by better understanding the core drivers, the main components that create that growth. And once those core components are identified, then we can design processes around them and each component assembled sequentially and, and then could be mapped. So what I'm saying there is that if we can visualize the, the big, hairy, audacious goal and then come up with things that we're doing that are unique and differentiated from the competition. Michael Porter at Harvard t- 
talks about in his book, Competitive Advantage, the definition of strategy is a unique and valuable position that's been established that's different from the competitors. So it's unique and it's valuable. Unique is something that I'd like to key on here so that when you think about your marketplace, what are the things that the marketplace is demanding of the competition that are being met or not being met by you or your competitors? And you can map that out in, a, in an exercise that we call attribution framework. That'll be the subject of another conversation. And that's, it's a fairly efficient way of getting to knowing what the gaps are that are not being met in the market. The point being that if you can fill those gaps, you're going to be unique and different from your competition, which will allow you to have a premium over them in pricing. It doesn't necessarily mean that you would own the market, but it would allow you to compete at a, at a higher level of profitability. So once we get going on the understanding what the gaps are and establishing strategies around achieving those gaps, we can map them out in a quarter by quarter swim lane fashion. And that way we can know what we're going to be doing in each quarter, say over the next three years. And we can quantify it in terms of the level of investment that it's going to take us. So it just gives us a much, much better handle on predictable profits. You know, I want to talk a little bit about acceleration. And when I think about acceleration, I think about the flywheel. As a young teen interested in cars, I took apart an old 56 Chevy. Well, it wasn't so old when I took it apart, and I'm sharing my age there, but but I learned about the genius of the flywheel. In my 56 Chevy, that flywheel worked by collecting energy and then releasing it quickly at rates that far exceeded the input rate of the engine, propelling me fast, rapidly down the road allowing the vehicle to uh, accelerate. In his 2001 classic book, Good to Great, Jim Collins first described the flywheel in a business concept. And this flywheel was befitting of a great company. He's recently put out a monograph on the concept of flywheel. And he really updates and makes personal this concept where he states that once we grasp how to create flywheel momentum in our particular circumstance and apply that understanding with creativity and discipline, we get the power of strategic compounding. So the Collins flywheel monograph provides us with a roadmap and template to help us develop our own flywheel for accelerated growth. Flywheels are not that complicated. They just need to be described in his monograph turning the flywheel, which by the way, is a very quick read. It's only about 35 pages. He uses a lot of examples of companies that have developed a flywheel. The first that I would reference is Vanguard, the mutual fund company. And when Bill McNabb, who was the CEO of Vanguard, brought his senior team out to see Collins in Boulder in 2009, They worked for two days to crystallize their own flywheel. If you can imagine a circle with five points on it, Vanguard flywheel being in the middle, at the 12 o'clock position, they would offer low-cost mutual funds. So that would be a brand promise. They're offering low-cost mutual funds. At the 
two o'clock position, they're delivering superior long-term results for clients. At the four o'clock position, they're building strong client loyalty. By the way, that loyalty is built because of delivering the superior long-term results. At the seven o'clock position, they're growing assets that are under management, so they're getting bigger. And at the 10 o'clock position, they're generating economies of scale because of that growth, which then allows them to offer lower cost mutual funds. So that's the flywheel. They're very focused on that flywheel. They don't get, they don't deviate very far away from it. And they've grown to be the largest mutual fund company in the world. And what's important about the characteristics of a flywheel for listeners who may not be used to that, uh, that idea is that each component sets up the next component and gets it moving uh, farther and faster. It's a dependent relationship. You've just described it, Harry. It's a dependent relationship. So each component, it's uh, B follows A, C follows B, that type of logical, it's linear thinking. It's logical and linear sequential thinking. And the other key point I really want to emphasize here is that they're not selling individual stocks. They're not into ETFs or other types of investment vehicles. They're into indexed mutual funds and low-cost mutual funds. That's what they do. Intel would be another example. When Andy Grove built that company as its CEO and working with his teams, he built their flywheel harnessing Moore's Law, which is the observation that the number of components on an integrated circuit achieved in an, at an affordable cost doubles roughly every 18 months. Many of us are familiar with Moore's Law, and it's been proven over many decades. But from that insight, uh, their founding team created a strategic compounding machine. So this is the concept of strategic compounding. And it's very simple. They design new chips that the customers crave. Think of their ad campaign, Intel Inside, on their Windows operating systems that you're, that you're using. Let's say I have a, a Hewlett-Packard uh, computer uh, laptop, and I open it up, and it says Intel Inside. It's a brilliant marketing uh, campaign. And it's like if you don't have that Intel Inside, you start to wonder, well, what's wrong with the machine? But we crave Intel chips. And so we design new chips that customers crave, and we price them at the 2 o'clock position. We price them high before any competition can catch up, and that helps us to amortize our, our R&D. And as prices drop, we're also driving down unit costs, and that would be at the 4, four o'clock position. And that happens as a result of capturing market share. We have greater market share because we're filling a gap that's not being met with a new chip. At the same time, as we're adding volume, we can start to drive down cost. The 7 o'clock position, they harvest profits even as prices fall, and they will fall because once the competition sees what's going on, the competition will copy and will reduce, will drive a reduction in pricing in the marketplace. But before that price drops too far, we've harvested the profits, and at the 10 o'clock position on the wheel, we're reinvesting those profits in R&D, which then allows us to create new chips that customers crave. This model is very similar to the medical device industry, which I personally was involved in for a number of years. 
We had a company, Solari Medical Technology, that was in the process of designing a class three high-risk implantable neurostimulation device similar to a cochlear implant. Unfortunately, we were not able to get it out to commercial distribution, but the model that the industry uses, and this would be true of Medtronic or Boston Scientific or Advanced Bionics or so many others, Johnson & Johnson, there, there are so many companies uh, that are in medical technology, and they will come to the market addressing a large unmet clinical need. That's the gap. They will create a strategy to fill that gap. They will come out with a product that is priced at a high level. They'll harvest the profits from that while driving down costs as volume increases. And as competition increases, driving down price, they are already ahead of it by coming out with new products as a result of new R&D. It's a very, very simple model that's used across multiple industries. So the flywheel concept is one I encourage you to look at if you're interested in accelerating the business. Michael, I would imagine that cash is also one of the primary vehicles for growth. Um, so are there ways that companies can accelerate that? Harry, cash is absolutely the fuel for growth, the primary one. And, and we know that growth really drains cash. Um, so your question is spot on. We need to look at, always be looking at ways to accelerate cash and return that cash back through the business cycle, as we just described in the flywheel. The cash conversion cycle exercise is one that I'd like to introduce to the audience and to really think about. And if you can imagine a cash conversion cycle, uh, which would include the sales cycle, the make, produce, inventory cycle, the delivery cycle, and the billing and payment cycle. So there's actually four components to the primary cycle. Each one of those components are a cycle in and of, in and of themselves. And if you would note in some companies like Amazon, Dell, Delta Airlines, and other similar companies that have a business model that requires payment before the product is received or utilized, in those cases, the cash conversion cycle is negative. So the cash conversion cycle really is the number of days that it takes from the time that basically the phone rings until the time the money is collected back in to the business. And if you measure your cash conversion cycle, you might be surprised at how long that process takes. With Amazon, I purchased a, a product uh, just this morning on Amazon. They've got it down to one click, buy now. And so I clicked on it and it's coming. And that product then uh, is going to be delivered in a few days, might be delivered tomorrow or the next day, might be even longer than that, depending on, uh, on what type of a product it is. But it's been paid for. My, my credit card was, card was debited today. So they have that cash. And when Amazon receives cash prior to shipping product, they, by definition, have a negative cash conversion cycle. And this cycle allows Amazon to initiate and deploy rapid expansion strategies, such as recently they purchased Whole Foods, for instance. That was a big acquisition. They also were able to launch in 2006 Amazon Web Services, which has been a phenomenally successful launch. But when we break the cash conversion cycle down into 
into its various components, there are four of them, basically. There are sales, the make production inventory component, the delivery component, and the billing and payment co uh, component. So if you look at each one of those components, each one of them has its own cycle. So the example I could cite would be out of Shannon Susco's The Metronome Effect, a great book, highly recommended. Shannon is a business coach, a CEO, an author, a colleague, and a good friend of mine. And she dissects the first component of, of the cash conversion cycle, the sales component, in a way that really makes sense. So there's, there's the lead, that's the incoming lead, the sales lead, which might be one day. It's, it's quantified. And that lead might, it might take a day or two or maybe even a week to qualify that lead. So there's a qualification questionnaire there's a budget requirement um, and so on that we would want to make sure that we're, we're getting that lead qualified and, and uh, set up properly if we're going to be doing business with them. We then go into uh, evaluating the opportunity, and that might be the first 25% of the time. And there's a needs analysis that would take 20 days. The value proposition, that might take a month to develop, depending on how complex it is. Then there's a proposal in a price quoting phase, and that might take another month. And then by the time it's all done, we have won or lost the opportunity, and we've, we've closed the deal. So in all of that, you know, we're talking about if you add all of that up, that's 85 to 90 days just in the sales cycle. After that, we need to make it, and then we need to deliver it. And then we need to bill it and get it paid for. So that 85 or 90 days might turn into 120 days. It's not uncommon to see cash conversion cycles that are out 120 to 150 days, which when you go through the exercise is totally shocking to the CEO and the leadership team, even the CFO. They have no idea that the cycle takes that long. So this is a very, very critical area that we need to be cognizant of and paying attention to. Now, your business model can definitely influence that. One way to improve it is to change your business model along the lines of a Dell. So if you buy a Dell computer, for instance, you're calling a customer service rep at Dell in Austin, and uh, they're building that uh, computer for you over the phone. They're, they're taking your specifications. And then when the specifications are all done, they don't really submit a proposal. They just give you a price and ask you for the credit card, which you gladly give them. They then take that credit card, process it, and they have the cash before they even go into production. And it's quite likely, maybe that that's coming out of inventory, but a lot of times they're building that machine for you on a just-in-time basis. So it's interesting that the last time we looked at it, Dell's cash conversion cycle was a negative 69 days. They have a hoard of cash that is incredibly large and allows them to have flexibility and strength, as we say, fortress balance sheet. It helps them to be in a position of strength when they're looking at uh, downturns or acquisitions. Just gives them a lot more uh, flexibility in, in how they do business. So continuing in this conversation without a strong nod to Salim Ismail's great book from 2014, Exponential Organizations, I would be remiss if I didn't mention it. Salim is a Canadian serial entrepreneur. He's an angel investor, 
obviously he's an author, a speaker, and, and a technology strategist. And he's the founding executive director of Singularity University. And he's the lead off, author of this, uh, of this great book. Um, and when he talks about uh, exponential organizations, he's really re recognizing that to achieve exponential growth, you must first think really big. This would be along the lines of Colin's big, hairy, audacious goal, maybe even bigger. Aspirational examples of big thinking from some of the fastest growing EXOs include Google, which their big thinking includes organizing the world's information. That's pretty big in my view. Ted, you know, Ted Talks. Some of us are familiar with Ted Talks. Ideas worth spreading. Singularity University, their, their big one is uh, big thinking is positively impacting 1 billion people. Salim refers to these as massive transformational purposes. So when we talk about purpose in business, Salim Ismail is talking about purpose in a, in a different way, in a bigger way, much, much bigger way, a massive transformational purpose. What's interesting about something, an idea that big is it almost transcends you as the leader of your company, you're essentially creating or hoping what will what will be a legacy because for the, some of these ideas to be realized at that scale, it's it's quite likely you may not be around to witness it. <laughs> well, it is possible. It, you know I, and that's that is how I think, Harry, and that's pr frankly how most people would think, sort of a uh, multi-generational um, purpose. And when we look at some of the enduring companies that have been around for decades and decades, even centuries or more in this country, we look at the Dow, for instance, the Dow 30 Industrials has uh, several companies on it that have been around for over 100 years. That's certainly true. But in Salim's examples, he's talking about companies such as, uh, say, Uber, for instance, or Airbnb, or even Google. You know, some of these companies that are just massive and their and their growth has been accelerated so much and they're they're young companies. They're less than in some cases five or ten years older or or thereabouts. And uh so it doesn't necessarily have to take a long time. Ismail talks about eleven attributes of an EXO company. And I don't want to dwell on each one of them for a long time, but you can pick up the book, Exponential Organizations, but I do want to give a nod to, to them and at least uh, mention them. And not every EXO has all 11 of these, but in his studies, every EXO has at least four. And so I'm just going to hit these uh, at a high level. So they, we just talked about massive transformational purpose. This is your your big why. And as my friend Mark Green talks about, if you're if your why doesn't give you goosebumps, then you probably have some more work to do on it. Mine is reaching and having an impact on 10,000 leaders. And that gave me goosebumps until I started reading Salim's work. And now I'm thinking maybe it should be more than 10,000. Maybe it should be 100,000 or a million or something. So it's challenging me to go back and think about my massive transformational purpose. Second one is staff on demand. This uh, makes your, your company uh, agile, flexible, very fast moving, and it's cost effective. Examples of that for me, even in my small business, I have a, I have a researcher in India that's helping me. I have a, 
a couple of coaches in marketing, including uh, my friend Harry Duran here on the call with me. I outsource uh, so much of what I do, and it makes me agile, flexible, fast-moving, and very cost-effective. Third one is a well-known community and crowd. You, you know how to leverage your growing community. This is your tribe. These are the people that you're associated with and they with you. You know how to leverage that, and there's a technology platform out there for you to do that with. There are several technology platforms out there to help you do that, including Facebook and LinkedIn. The fourth is algorithms. The fastest growing and best EXOs leverage data and algorithms to scale in ways that are possible today that weren't possible even five years ago. Google's PageRank algorithm earns more than a billion dollars a week. UPS saves over a billion dollars a year routing 55,000 trucks very efficiently using an algorithm. The fifth is leveraged assets. Again, think Airbnb and Uber. Uber is the largest taxi company in the world and they don't have any taxis. Airbnb is the largest hotel chain in the world and they don't own any properties. So that's the leveraging of the assets that, that, that are out there for you. The sixth is engagement. And here we're talking about getting real-time feedback from your users. You want to know what's working and what's not working in your marketing efforts. You want to know how to improve them and, and where to improve them. And you can get that by having rapid feedback through a higher level of engagement with your, with your people and with your clients. That would be external and internal. The seventh is filtering out the noise. You need to get to usable and actionable information and leverage that to your benefit. There's so much noise out there, and if you can take that out and just focus on the data that's important to your company, you will have a much greater level of acceleration in your business. The eighth is dashboards. EXOs are all very data-driven. An example would be Walmart. All inventory and credit card information is online, real-time, and it gives them the ability to know instantly what's moving and what is not moving through their value chain. The ninth is experimentation. The best EXOs are constantly iterating on everything they're doing, everything that they think, they measure, they test, they iterate. It's a cycle and they're constantly experimenting and improving their processes. This used to be called a continuous improvement, by the way, but it's at a higher level here. The 10th is autonomy, and here we're, we're looking at EXOs that are more accountable with amazing results. And the 11th attribute is social technology. They allow their people to have much, much greater peer-to-peer -peer interaction utilizing some of the technologies that are out there. And by, by these uh, platforms, I mean companies such as Slack, Yammer, Podio, Chatter, etc. Any of these would bring them on board into the company, allow the company to communicate more frequently and, and more efficiently. These are the attributes that the EXOs exhibit. And again, you wouldn't need to have all 11 of them, but if you just had a minimum of four, you would have a much greater potential of accelerating your business.
definitely sounds like an interesting read and we'll make sure we have links to the books and uh, the resources you mentioned in the show notes. So good discussion today and thanks Harry for the questions. Hopefully this was helpful. Looking forward to our next episode, which is titled Leading High Performance Cohesive Teams. And I look forward to our next time together, Harry. Likewise, Michael. Thanks for the engaging discussion today. See you next time. Thanks for listening to another episode of CEO Brain Food. To listen to all past episodes, as well as view the show notes that we create for each episode, head on over to ceobrainfood.com.